Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be speaking once again to one of our favorites, wildly successful comedian Mike Kaplan, who will once again be disproving the widespread belief that vegans aren't funny. (laughs) Though, actually, I I don't think I'm that funny. Actually, I don't don't think you're that funny. But Mike (laughs) is actually quite funny. So let's get to that now. I'm kidding. We have to talk first, don't we? I I actually think you're very funny. For the record, you're one of the funniest people that I know. Hmm, interesting. Most people find me quite depressing, I think. Well, yeah, but like in a hilarious way. (laughs) I want that on my grave. Well, if I have an epitaph, if if I have a headstone, I don't know what people are going to be doing anymore. But um, if I have a headstone, I want to say funny in a depressing way. No, depressing in a funny way. One or the other. Why don't you have it say all of that? Or you could make it like a poll and say, which of these should I use? Funny in a depressing way or depressing in a funny way? <laughs> I saw on Twitter the other day a picture of a, of a gravestone and it had a recipe on it. for I think it was for like chocolate chip cookies. Oh, my God. It's pretty funny. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Engraved in it. Yeah. That's, I love that so much. That's so funny. My, you could do vegan chocolate chip cookie. Well, no, not chocolate because I, I can't eat chocolate. Does everybody out there know the great yes, tragedy of Marianne Sullivan's life that she can't eat chocolate? Well, it's not like of your life because you were able to eat chocolate until very recently. And I sort of think you still can. But, you know, I think it's possible. I still can. But scares me to try it. So you did try it last year on my birthday. Yeah, you, you had some yeah. cake. I'd had a few drinks and I forgot. And then and I had some chocolate cake. Yeah. And you were fine. I was fine. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll conduct an experiment. Wait, can I tell you something very important? I got this new chocolate that's called Evolved. And I got the white chocolate and it's like a vegan milk chocolate. Well, white chocolate and milk chocolate are not the same thing. Right. But this is a milk chocolate that's white and that's vegan. So far, this makes no sense whatsoever. I started to cry almost because I saw there was monk fruit in it. And I think monk fruit is the single most disgusting ingredient. Monk fruit. Well, I don't uh, think I've ever eaten monk fruit. That's a sweet, a sweetener. Yeah, it's a sweetener. But then I tried it anyway, because, you know, I had to take one for the team and it was delicious. So I, I was it was fine. Huh. I'm glad that we're providing an educational platform for our <laughs> for our listeners. Education of what? Of what we can eat and can't eat in our pathetic states. I'm in a very pathetic state. <laughs> you are in a pathetic state today. You got back from, from your trip, which if people have been listening, and if you haven't been listening, why haven't you been listening? But if you have been listening, you know that... Because we talk about the difference between white chocolate and and milk... Yeah, that might be the reason. Jasmine has been uh, on a road trip to Kansas City and back. And since you got back, you have been working pretty much nonstop at the radio station. I've been guest hosting Morning Edition and I host Weekend Edition as well. So I was Weekend Editioning and then I was Morning Editioning. And so when I do Morning Edition, I have to get up at 3 a.m. and get there at 4 a.m. Yeah, no, that makes no sense. That's not a time that people get up. I I was actually like, I was like, oof, I have to do a little more work. Should I get there earlier? And I, I thought I can't get up earlier than three because that truly feels like the middle of the night. It, it well, it truly is like, the middle of the night. That's why that's what it feels like. I pride myself on being able to do it. And yet what I'm doing that's stupid is not not thinning down anything else in my day. Yeah, that's very that's very Jasmine Singer, I have to admit. 
Well, today, anyway, it's it, the rest of my week is fine. It, and I even have a massage just to make this an even more interesting conversation. So, <laughs> and what else about me? Oh, wait, I did get I did get a, a tofu mention on the air this morning. You did tell everybody about it. It was very clever. I was teasing a story about like a DIY barbecue using like a large flower pot and some sand and a c- cylinder block, uh, not a cylinder, a block, like a, what, a cement block. No, it's not cement. It's the thing they used to make schools out of. <laughs> <laughs> this is cinder. So fascinating. Cinder block. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> cinder block. I just, I was just in this, like, I'm in this coaching group and I was in it right before this. And like, I said a sentence and everyone just stared at me. They're like, and, and Kathleen, my coach was like, I just don't, I, you know, I'm not totally understanding what you're saying right now. <laughs> and I, Yeah. So thank you. Cinderblock. Anyway, so you could make a tandoori, like, D- DIY BBQ instead of the quote unquote maximalist BBQ. And so I was teasing the story about that. And I said, I'd put my tofu on that. And I'm sure everyone went vegan after, yeah, after I I'm sure that. they did. As I said to you at the time when you said, oh, I'm sure everybody went vegan, you know, making fun of yourself. Like those things matter. I really think they do, especially when you're on the radio. Like, like, all right, maybe you don't have anybody who says, oh my God, Jasmine Singer said tofu, I'm going vegan. But, you know, for people who are kind of like thinking about it or who are, who are contemplating it or who need to, you know, you need to hear something at least, apparently most people need to hear it at least 10,000 times before they make a change. Uh, that's one of their 10,000. You check it off. I thought it was like 10. Now it's 10,000. I think it used to be 10, but I've changed my mind. Okay. Well, let it be known. I've become cynical. Has anybody noticed that? I have no idea what you're talking about. So, what I no, it was fun. I, I like to, you know, get little things in there here and there when I can. So, can I tell you, I just want to go back to the trip for a second because I, the last two weeks we were recording this segment while I was, dri- you know, either driving or a passenger. We took the trip in our electric vehicle. And I, at the end of the day, I will say it was fine. Like, we thought we were like pioneers, but really it wasn't that hard. You could find charging stations everywhere. I've definitely been to more Walmart parking lots in the last two weeks well, than I'm, I have I'm not in sure my I, whole life. I would call that a plus, but okay. Right. But you know, Walmart had them. And sometimes when you're in the middle of the Midwest, you're like, okay, well, I'm going to sit outside of Walmart now. No, that's a big plus for Walmart. Go Walmart. So there were two cities that I wanted to talk about. Uh, one is Kalamazoo, Michigan. Do you have a gal there? I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> no, people, like, there's no one listening to this that's going to understand that reference. I can't believe that nobody knows the song. I've got a gal in Kalamazoo. Like, I, I you know, every day I feel older than I did the day before. I was shocked when, when you had never heard of that song. It well, was a, I mean, it's before my time. I want to make that clear. <laughs> like, I was not born when that song was popular. But I don't know. It's one of those iconic songs. 
No, I, it was really good, too. But so we went to Kalamazoo because we were in Chicago the night before, which is just such a wonderful city. And I, I love it. I just love Chicago. Yeah, I love Chicago. But, so we only we changed our plans to just drive to Kalamazoo so that it was a relatively short travel day. And when we were leaving town, we found an EV charging station at like some random strip mall. So we go to the strip mall and we saw that there was a Sam's Club there and we're not members so we were like, are they even going to let us in? So we charged the car. There's these guys next to us who are like plugging in their car too. We have like a couple friendly words with them. And we're looking around at the strip mall to see if there was like somewhere to go that wasn't Sam's Club for the like half hour that it was going to charge. And I was like, is that, could that, is that? And it was indeed a vegan restaurant at a strip mall in Kalamazoo. That's so crazy. Yeah. Well, I guess it's not that crazy. I yeah. guess it was know. called Glow Foods, GLO, Glow Foods. It was also gluten free, which, you know, I, I'm I'm actually I'm not gluten free. And I hate when people confuse the two things. I'm sure lots of people are nodding right now because all vegans hate that shit. But I am light gluten. And so I appreciated that. But most importantly, the food was fantastic. And it was just such a cool experience. It was like, is this the world we live in? Yes. And the guy, oh, this was the other thing. The guys who were charging the car next to ours were also in there. So they have it down. They're like, vegan restaurant, electric car charging, done and done. So we also drove to Cleveland. And can I just say there is like, I think maybe I'm trying to think. It's definitely one of the best, if not the best, restaurant from the trip, which was uh, Cloak and Dagger, which is this sort of like goth kind of vegan bar with this like plant forward food and these high interesting uh, zero proof mocktails and cocktails. And it was so great. I loved it. I bought a t-shirt and everything. I just, I, you need to go there. Cleveland isn't like that far. I mean, it's far. No, Cleveland really isn't that far from Rochester. Yeah, I would go there to go to that restaurant. Cool. We should go sometime. So anyway, fantastic trip. And then when I got back, I was like, I'm just going to make up for all the hours I took off in one week. So uh, what's been happening by you? Well, I don't really have a whole lot of news. I, I was like, you know, walking your dogs. <laughs> you were Thank you. It hasn't been that exciting. But I think that's exciting. I, they're exciting. Yeah, well, yeah, they're they're very cute. Yeah, and Murray's kind of exciting, but because uh, he's young. Did you see the video that Moore sent this morning of George, who is our little Chihuahua, who is 16 and a half, and he's like, he, he hardly even walks, and there was a, he was in the backyard, and there was a bunny, and he started like, as fast as he can, chasing the bunny. I did see it. It was inspiring. It was amazing. I was yeah. like, Are you, have you been holding out, dude? Like, what? Has Anyhow. he been like passed out all day? No, he's he he has an, a new sense of vitality now. If you're feeling a lack of energy, go chase a bunny or rescue one. Only if you have the means to take care of them. Thus concludes this PSA. So that's all you've been doing? <laughs> Well, you know, holding down the fort, whatever. No, I like like what a question to ask me. I, I I haven't been doing anything terribly interesting. I have been a little obsessed with this new bill, 
which I think everybody needs to be obsessed about. I do talk, I'm going to talk about it in Rising Anxiety, so I won't go on about it. The Eat Spill, which is the stupidest name. Oh God, these people are pathetic. Ending Agricultural Trade Suppression Act. And it's the bill that the industry has introduced in order to get rid of Prop 12. And, you know, which is possible. It's not like Prop 12 is in the Constitution. It's just the Constitution doesn't bar Prop 12. But if the federal government wants to pass a bill, since the federal government is in charge of commerce uh, under the Constitution, the federal government can't. And this is uh, pretty much the same bill that was introduced by Steve King. I don't know if anybody remembers him. The Republican of Iowa is just a fucking nightmare. And he's not in Congress anymore. But but yeah, this bill has come up again. And basically what it would do is it would prevent states from banning anything that was done in an, made in another state, pretty much. And uh, as Kitty Block said, for the, I have this piece from HSUS, designed to wipe out state laws that ban the cruel, immobilizing confinement of egg-laying hens, mother pigs, and baby field calves. It defies the common values consumers expect the food industry to uphold. It's not even just food. It would apply to other things as well. It's a crazy, crazy bill. We'll be talking more about it um, as it goes. If it starts looking like it's going to really take off, uh, here's another quote. State laws on a vast range of additional agricultural issues are also at risk, including pesticide application on fields, arsenic in food, protection against lead poisoning, chemicals in baby food, pollution standards for spraying sewage on crops, flammability standards for cigarettes and child labor. Like it just basically says that every state has to... Uh, in order to sell products in their state, they have to comply with the regulations of the worst state in the country uh, and no more. They can't put any more regulations for products that are going to be sold in their state. Of course, they could put limitations on products that are going to be produced in their state, which would then be more expensive than the products that are made more cheaply in other states. So they would put all of their own people out of business. It's nefarious, just nefarious. So I've been a little obsessed about that as I think a lot of people are. And, you know, that's my interesting life. I, I don't get to go to like fancy bars in Cleveland, Ohio. Well, I mean, you walked the dogs. That's just as exciting. It was exciting. One thing I, I, I jotted down to talk about, I mean, it's not really a quote because I've heard people say it before and it wasn't said, it, I saw it on Twitter and it was said in the context of, of Trump and, and I'm not going to get into any of that. But the saying is change happens very slowly and then all at once. And it really made me, I, I'm really going to try to hold on to that because I think we get so frustrated with how slow change is and with things like the EATS Act, which, you know, we, take, we have one big victory, the Prop 12 victory in the Supreme Court, and immediately they're trying to take it away. And it just, you know, sometimes you just feel out of despair. But I really... I really think this is right. Change happens very slowly and then all at once. That's the way things happen, especially with something that everybody out there is in denial about. We know that people agree with us or, you know, except for the psychopaths, um, people agree with us about animals. They just, you know, they're, they, they just don't, I don't, I don't know what they do. They, they're in denial about it. They don't think about it. They, they, they just don't think about things. But when they do, and these very, very slow changes that we see happening. And things are different than they were 10 years ago and a lot different than they were 20 years ago and the way people feel about animals. And and when that happens, like it's it just starts to build. And then change can actually happen all at once, like just really fast, especially for this, because if people stop eating animals, then people stop eating animals and we'll have different kinds of food. I mean, it could happen so fast. 
I think it's hopeful. And and honestly, I was surprised when we were talking about what we were going to chat about and you busted this out. I was like, are, really? You want to? I mean, because it's not you're not generally a hopeful person. I mean, All right, let's not get carried away here. <laughs> I try to be. I try to come up with things to make me hopeful. It's just, you know, I'm sure like a lot of people listening, there are a lot of things that make you feel not so hopeful. Agreed. But I, I really that. work at it. But I just try to be real about it. I don't want fake hope. I don't want to like fool myself. Oh, I'm so excited about this this interview that I have coming up. Like, like let's stop talking and, and get to something funny because I think that Mike people- is really a hopeful dude, and and he sees he sees shit for how it is. It's not like he's disillusioned. He just has this like fascinating way of piecing it all together. All right, let's get to that. Mike Kaplan has appeared on The Tonight Show, Conan, Letterman, James Corden, Seth Meyers, Comedy Central, Last Comic Standing, Ameris Got Talent, and Our Hen House. He has a one-hour stand-up special on Amazon, Small, Dork, and Handsome, and two podcasts, The Faucet and Broccoli and Ice Cream. His debut album, Vegan Mind Meld, was one of iTunes' top 10 comedy albums of the year, and his newest album, AKA, debuted at number one and was called Invigoratingly Funny by the New York Times. He will be joining Jasmine right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome back to our henhouse. Thank you so much. I'm always happy to talk to you. We've been on our henhouse before and you've also been part of our events and you're a longtime vegan and my friend and my brother from another mother. And now you have another album coming out. So tell me about it. I'm happy to. Thank you. So the newest widely released album of mine is called Live In Between Albums. And it's called that in part because or mainly because I've made many albums. And in 2016, I had an album that I recorded called No Kidding. And that was like the first themed album I had that was sort of built around the theme of wanting no kids. And then in 2020, I released an album that I believe I came on the show. You were always very gracious to have me. That album was called AKA, which is short for All Killing Aside, which has themes of not murdering mainly, like love, compassion, not murdering. So the 2016 album, I don't want to bring more people into the world. The 2020 album, I don't want to remove any from the world or any any sentient beings. So let's just keep the level steady. And since I've been doing comedy for 20 years, my first albums were more just like, I hope anyone likes these jokes. They Who knows what they're about? Some were about veganism, some were about movies, some were about my life. Anyway, I now was like, oh, I want to talk about what's important to me. I want to talk about things that I care about. And I feel like I can do these large pieces that have more 
connectivity, more thematic coherence. And also, I still wrote a lot of silly jokes that didn't go with either of those albums, with either of those themes in the meantime. And I was like, well, I think people might enjoy hearing these also, you know, even if it's not specifically about veganism or another issue that I care about. Like maybe, you know, people out there working hard in the vegan activism minds, you know, want to come home at night and just listen to some silly things. And so this album, live in between albums, I recorded in between those two albums. And it's full of jokes that don't really fit with either of the themes and don't necessarily go together with anything. And so that's why they all go together with each other in a way that I sometimes like to think about when I was a, a kid and I went to this summer camp that I wouldn't say saved my life, but really enhanced my life, really helped me blossom and learn that there were kids out there and other human beings who weren't my family, who I was very grateful that my family loved me, but it felt like they had to. And I found these friends, my peers, who were these kind, kind-hearted, other artsy weirdos at this summer camp that like the whole school year felt like, you know, kind of a black and white pre-Wizard of Oz kind of, you know, like not yet over the rainbow, just like, ah, you know, time to make the homework kind of idea. And but this summer camp, full color, beautiful, just a, a social world opened up to me, like and I came out of my shell. And because there were all these other like kids who I feel like had that same school experience, this the outcast, the misfit. And so we all ultimately fit together because we all didn't necessarily fit anywhere on our own. That's what this album is. It's sort of the island of misfit jokes that all belong together. <laughs> How do you collect the content that you create? Because what I love about your work, Mike, and I, I, it's like not even really work. What I love about your mind is that you're constantly reflecting on life. I mean, even in describing your albums in the last couple minutes, you were offering me insights, even in just describing them. And I guess I don't fully understand how your mind works in terms of taking just what might be perceived as an ordinary thing and turning it into content. Can you tell me more about that process? I'll take us back to when I started doing comedy. I knew that I could control the quantity more than I could control the quality. And so I just, any idea that I had that I thought either was funny or could be funny at this point, now I think I don't always even start from what I think is necessarily funny. Like I might start with something that I think is important. I'm like, how can I make something that I think is important, funny and accessible? So sometimes I'll start with something important and then try to make it funny. Sometimes I'll start with something that I think is funny and then see if I can make some meaning out of it. I mean, sometimes just being funny itself is all the meaning that it needs. Like joy needs no reason. But in the beginning, I would just fill notebooks and fill a digital recorder over and over with just all these ideas that might end up being song lyrics or jokes or journal entries or, you know, part of a new philosophical manifesto. Like I didn't know. And I kind of, you know, in the best way, didn't care. I was just like, in a way, throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall and uh, which I don't actually even really understand how that and then when it sticks, then that's the spaghetti that you eat. I'm not sure I'm not a chef myself, but so like as an example, like to 
zoom in from the general to the specific, like I might like when we're done recording, if I remember, if I think about it, and maybe I've even done this already, I might think like, oh, that spaghetti idea. It like came to me in the course of this conversation, which this is a podcast, but also we're friends and we're having a conversation and it's fun to talk. And also if it were like a a legitimate non-recorded conversation, I would monopolize it less. Uh, (laughs) I would ask you more questions. Oh my gosh. Like sometimes people come on my podcast and they're like, Oh, I, I feel like I talked the whole time. I'm like, yes, that was by design. I invited you here to learn about you. Like I, I know about me. I want to hear about you. And so I'm grateful that you have me here and want to learn about me. So that is one example of how I might like record like, Oh, how about that spaghetti idea could be something funny. And so My girlfriend, Rini, who I've been with for almost just about seven years now, she has described there's these two phases of my process of creation as one, the blooming phase and two, the pruning phase. And so the blooming phase is just what it's like. I plant seeds, water them, grow them, and then just a massive, I don't know, forest manifests then the pruning phase is like, what is the show going to be? Or what is the ultimate, what is the joke going to be? What is this going to be? And so this is all to say, like the original spaghetti phase, I'm mixing a lot of med- metaphors here. It's a forest of spaghetti, of course. Uh, as we all know, the the old expression, can't see the forest for the spaghettries. And... <laughs> So I just sort of allow that to happen. One of my podcasts is called The Faucet, also inspired by and named by Rini, who during the initial lockdown phases of the pandemic noted that I was doing a lot of Zoom comedy shows, a lot of performances where I was just riffing and just coming up with things off the top of my head. And she's like, you could just do that. Just like turn on the faucet anytime, you know, let spout off, let the stream of consciousness out. And so I do that. And that is the blooming. And then at some point, when my recorder is full, when my notebook is full, it becomes in a way more like homework, but a fun kind of homework, because I'm the teacher, and I don't have to do it. And there's no deadline for the assignment other than like, it's kind of a funny Buddhist adjacent thing where my understanding is that take a a mug that you drink tea out of, like when a mug is empty, like that is how it fills its function. It needs to be empty in order to be filled so that you can drink it again, empty it. And it's just a, a continual process. And so I feel like my digital recorder kind of operates the same way. If it's empty, I can fill it and then I need to empty it so I can fill it. Mm-hmm. And so I keep that process continually going. My first album that I recorded in 2009 was called Vegan Mind Meld. And that album was basically just all of the jokes that sort of rose to the top of my consciousness to the front burner over the first seven, eight years that I was pursuing comedy. I was just like, well, I say these things to the audience. And then later I look back and be like, well, how did they go? And what order could they go in? And it was much more piecemeal and haphazard in the beginning. And now I'm very grateful that I have in the past years had the realization that I could have a central theme to work around. And also I still love just, you know, sometimes you see a comedian and it's an hour of comedy that has nothing, you know, it's just like joke after joke. Like there's a comedian friend of mine named Brad Wenzel. He just put out a special called Joke, Joke, Joke. And it's, that is what it is. It's just like joke after joke after joke. And some of the best comedians do that. And some of the other best comedians, uh, (laughs) like Maria Bamford, one of my favorites, like she has 
like themes of mental health and mental illness that run through a lot of her hours of comedy. And it's her and it's her experience. And to answer your question, I guess the short answer is I don't know. But (laughs) the long answer is everything that I've just done. I have like processes and systems of curation in place that I want to be in place where like the hour that I'm bringing to the Edinburgh Fringe Fest is an hour that is about my relationship with Rini that we have co-created and co-curated over the last several years. And so that hour, everything that I write that sort of added up to that hour, like goes there. Other things that don't fit, I'm like, oh, maybe that will go in the next hour about toxic masculinity. Maybe this one will go in a future hour about my grandmother and my mother. And so at the creation phase, I let everything come out and I quote unquote capture it with these devices that I have. And then it's sort of like the way I don't know if you've ever read the book Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's really great. And it's about like the various systems we have in our brain. One thing it talks about is that there's the experiencing brain and then the remembering brain. And they're like slightly different. Like what you're experiencing isn't always exactly what you remember. And so I feel like I think that I'm doing the experiencing, like when I'm having an idea, I'm like, ah, spaghetti against the wall. That's the idea. And then later I'll have help by the aid of technology to aid my remembering brain because my remembering brain might not remember without my, uh, my little robot that I outsource a lot of my remembering to. So I guess the answer is robots. That's how I do it. (laughs) That makes sense. So the AI world is definitely something you're probably down with since you're <laughs> a robotic mean, guy. Are you worried that an AI robot is going to take over your spot in the world? I'm currently not worried for a couple reasons. Number one, right now, all the times that I've seen someone ask uh, an AI to give them a joke in the style of a certain comedian, they have not done that. Like, for example, a friend once asked, can you give me a joke in the style of Mitch Hedberg? And then the AI delivered literally a joke by comedian Dimitri Martin. And he said, well, that's oh that's not in the style of Mitch Hedberg, arguably. And then the AI was like, I'm so sorry. Here, how about this one? And then they gave him literally a Mitch Hedberg joke. So, And perhaps it's oh going to improve. But a policy that I have that I like to enact as much as possible is freak out later. You can always freak out later. Like right now, right now, here I am in the present moment, the only one that there is with you, my friend that I love and I'm very grateful for. And right now, the robots need us currently, like to turn them on and ask them questions and they're not even answering them the best. And when they do, they're like, look at this painting that I made. And like, did you really, I mean, you, like a human did the heavy lifting of making that painting or whatever it is. And the freak out later is something that I got from one time when I was on a, uh, I was at my friend's wedding. And it was like a whole weekend and there's an after party, like in the night before the wedding ceremony. And none of that is maybe necessary detail, but there was weed vape. And I'm not, I, at the time, like I'm not a big weed smoker. And, 
But I was like, vapor, that sounds better than putting smoke and fire in my lung. And so I took it into my head and it didn't even really feel like anything. But then I felt it really strongly. And I was like, oh, this feels good. But then I immediately worried. I'm like, but what if I took in too much? And what if it's what if this amount of high keeps on increasing and I can't handle it as well? And, and I was basically like, what if I freak out? And then I almost started freaking out. And I was like, wait, what if I don't freak out? It feels good now. So why don't I just try to enjoy that? And if I'm going to freak out later, then I can always freak out later. Like I can always, if you can procrastinate freaking out, if you can put off freaking out, that's what I'm saying. I was saying to myself, I was basically mathematically like, if I freak out now, then that's definitely one freak out. And then if I freak out later also, then that's two. But if I don't freak out now and I do freak out later, that's only one. And if I don't freak out now, maybe I won't even freak out later. So maybe it'll be zero. But if I freak out now, it can't be zero. So the only way to have zero or the lowest number of freakouts is to freak out later. And so this is freaking me out. Honestly. <laughs> so, like, so I'm not worried about the robots now. That's okay. all. I'm I, I'll get back let's talk again in a year and i'll see if i'm freaking out then all right i'll book that episode of our hen has now and the title of it is mike kaplan freaking out when will mike kaplan freak out yeah later the answer is later so we just talked about ai and i am also noticing and i'm sure you have a much much deeper understanding of this than i do but i'm noticing that the landscape of comedy is changing like it does seem to be sometimes it it parlays into a one person show more so than like stand up there are some very popular comedy specials that have been on tv and they have not been particularly funny but they're super compelling and they make you think and i guess i just want your take on what the heck is happening and like can we just please still laugh at comedy shows because we really need to. Like, we're stressed out now, not later. <laughs> well, number one, I'm actually now, uh, you can't see me because we're we're just talking audio-wise, but I'm taking my digital recorder and I'm recording just for my journal, if not to tell people in some other form, that on this date that you and I, Jasmine, are talking, you just said can we please all just laugh at comedy shows? And <laughs> I thought that that was funny. And I mean, I think in one way, the answer is yes. I mean, maybe it hinges on the use of the word just, but I'm going to, I'm going to answer the spirit of your question more than perhaps the letter of it. I mean, and the, the short answer is yes. And the long answer is yes. <laughs> that is not a joke that I originated, but uh, I love it and have, I, I don't remember where it first came from. Perhaps Family Guy. It might be where I saw it first. That, that sounds right. Here's the thing. As life progresses, I think it gets more complex in many ways. Like, you know, let's say evolutionarily, we evolved from original, like, amoeba type things like one-celled organisms and it gets more and more complex or like the big bang you know and maybe there's like a blooming and pruning analogy maybe you know it grows and then you know it and ebbs and flows inhales and exhales but this is all to say comedy i think also is getting more complex and art in general and society is there's more and more and maybe it's not that it's 
getting more complex, but like our understanding of it is becoming more nuanced. It used to be in comedy in the 80s, there was like the Johnny Carson Tonight Show. And that was like, it seemed to be, and like tens of millions of people watched it. And there weren't podcasts and there weren't web series and there weren't many ways to go viral and forge your own path. Shows would go off the air if they didn't have tens of millions of viewers in like prime time, one of the three channel slots. And now there's so many different platforms and so many different channels. And there can be all different kinds of weird shows that don't have to appeal to quote unquote everyone the way that it used to, which is cool. I think that's great. And that there are shows being made and voices being heard and amplified now that like never were and or quote never would have been and certainly weren't decades ago or even just a few years ago. And I think things are either getting weirder or we're just more aware of all these different disparate things and pieces of art and creators. And so, like, I think there's now probably more comedians and more performance artists alive and working and out there and available than ever before. There's a friend of mine named Sean McCarthy who has a Uh, a substack called Piffany, where he reports on like the state of comedy. And this year alone, I think there've already been like hundreds of comedy specials that have been put out. Like it used to be like, you could probably go to the store and get like every new comedy album as it came out. And now anyone can just put things on YouTube and people are, and it's wonderful. And it's sort of a kind of democratization that like, there aren't just gatekeepers that are keeping people out and being like, you have to be of a certain level or caliber. And who are the people who are the and what are the specifications? And I guess the flip side of that speaks to maybe part of your question, which is like, because there are no gatekeepers, it's like everything is out there. There's information, there's disinformation, there's misinformation, there's entertaining things, there's weird things, there's things that are comedic or intended to be. There's things that aren't intended to be. And there's a new idea that I'm working on for a future comedy hour. And that idea is that in some ways, uh, I'm going to liken everything to astrology. And just as a very rudimentary description of what I mean by that is like, sometimes if a person is into astrology, they'll meet someone, they'll ask, when were you born? And they're basically looking for a map. They're like, oh, so if you were born here, then that means this about you. When in fact, maybe those things, maybe the map won't match the territory, right? Maybe, maybe it's maybe because everybody is an individual. And I don't think that you can know everything about a person based on when, where, and like the circumstances of their birth per se. But we do that in so many ways, like uh, here's another example. Sometimes I imagine you've had this experience. I've had this experience. People find out we say I'm vegan and people are like, oh, that's like an astrological map. If you say you're vegan, then I think that means these things about you, whether or not those things are true. Does that make sense? And the same thing for somebody's like, I'm an atheist or I'm a Christian or I do this or do that, you know, or I'm a queer person or I'm not. And we are as humans sort of like pattern recognizers. 
and pattern seekers and categorizers. And it's very helpful evolutionarily to be like that creature or that plant looks like a plant that poisoned my friend. So I'm not going to I'm going to I'm going to stereotype that plant, which I mean, is kind of like in a way what astrology is as well as like making generalizations based on some smaller amount of information. And sometimes these generalizations can be in some ways true and useful. And in other ways, like I think it's always I think you always get more information if you go direct to the source and be like, instead of what are you like, be like, who are you or what are you doing? And so I think that when even saying that something is a comedy special or saying that something is comedy is kind of putting like, you know, an astrological type sign on a thing, because sometimes people might be like, well, that's comedy. But I thought comedy was supposed to be like Mm -hmm. this. I thought comedy was supposed to be funny to me or everyone or and of course, nothing is funny to everyone. Like, you have to speak the language to understand a comedy special, usually, unless it's mime or super physical comedy. To get more specific, as I just said, is good. Like, Nanette is a great mm-hmm. example of a comedy special that isn't only comedy. It's definitely comedy and more. And I think there are lots of cool specials like that. And I was just telling my mom about this and she likes like learning things and getting a handle on categories of things because I did a workshop, a stand up workshop at a college a couple weeks ago. And one of the other workshop facilitators is a storyteller. And I was telling my mom about storytelling and she was like, oh, like what can you describe what that is exactly? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, like there are certain structures and certain formats like The Moth is a, a famous like storytelling show where people tell stories in a certain way. I would say that I'm not a storyteller in that way. And but if somebody was like, but you would you say you're not a storyteller? I'm like, what does storyteller mean? Like, what are our definitions? What are we agreeing that things mean? So in like there are some comedians who are storytellers. Mike Birbiglia, a wonderful storyteller. Sam Morrison, his new show Sugar Daddy is an amazing, beautiful narrative about his partner dying of COVID a few years ago and him getting diabetes as a reaction to his grief. It's beautiful and wonderful. Alex Edelman has a wonderful show that's going to Broadway now. And so some stand-up comedians are storytellers. Many stand-up comedians are not storytellers in that way. You're joke, joke, joke comedian. And then some storytellers are not comedians. There's a Venn diagram where I think that sometimes we choose to go to a movie or a piece of art or a comedy show or a whatever, hopefully based on, I think the best way is to go based on the individual. Like, I like this person, so I'm going to engage with their art. But sometimes people are just like, oh, what genre is this? I think I like this general genre or this general shape. And comedy is weird because people don't even always know that there are genres of comedy, I think, in a way that people might go to a comedy club on the weekend. Like, I'm just going to go to the comedy club. Like, who knows? doesn't matter what kind of comedy it is in a way that no one would ever go to a movie theater and be like, just give me whatever movie's starting now. You'd at least want to know, is it a horror movie? Is it a documentary? Is it a comedy? Probably you'd want to. Maybe you don't. That's fine. Or music. You'd be like, I'm just going to go down to the music club tonight and take in that. And so... I think that to your question, 
yes, I think there are comedians who are just out there, joke, joke, joking it up. There's a dichotomy that I'll draw that is not the only categorization necessary or possible, but that there are comedians out there who are like actively, I think, just like for the people who've like worked hard all day and just want to have a laugh. You've been engaging with the news, social media, your job at the hospital, whatever it might be, activism. And you're like, I just want to sit down and like maybe turn my brain off and just like enjoy like, I don't know. Brian Regan, perhaps, who even like that might not even be the best example, because in his most recent special, he engages with the topic of his OCD in a way that he hadn't before. And I think is really meaningful in addition to being just sort of straight ahead hilarious. But then also there's some people that are like that don't want to turn their brain off, that want their art and comedy to address the things in the world that they want changed. You know, your your Maria Bamfords and Kamau Bells and Tiggs and Aparna Nancherlas and Hari Kondabolus. And like there are so many that are, I think, both doing like addressing real world challenges and making people laugh. So I guess when you ask, like, can we all just laugh at comedy? I'll have you fill out a questionnaire and be like, what examples of just laughing at comedy have you experienced? And let's see if we can create an algorithm for you to be like, if you like that, then maybe you'll like this. Yeah, there's your AI. I love that. Actually, if you could control all the AI, I'm sure there's one one AI machine controlling all of it. If you could maybe have a stake in that, then I would probably be a little more comfortable with AI knowing that it would show me answers based on your perspective. I also, when you were talking, I was like, you mentioned something that was a dichotomy. And I was like, speaking of dichotomies, I feel very, very polarized on a lot of issues. Like I feel really strongly that way and really strongly that way. And so if I have a comedy album, I'm going to call it Dichotomy. Yeah, I like that a lot. I just uh, came up with it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not the one at Edinburgh, though, but go ahead. I'm interrupting <laughs> oh, you. Oh, no, no. I We're having a conversation. I appreciate it. And you just reminded me, my friend Gus, who I think I've mentioned to you. Is, one or two is, million times, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend Gus is, among other things, a therapist in the modality of DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy. And a dialectic is itself the kind of thing that you were just referring to in your wonderful joke and truth. A dialectic is where there there could be like two things that are seemingly contradictory, but both true that a person might go to therapy for. Like perhaps they feel that they have been hurt by someone else, but they can also understand why the other person did what they did and said or said what they said. And so it's not that one is true and one is not true. Both are true. Shout out to another comedian friend of mine, Alex Dobrenko, who has a substack called Both Are True, which is funny and meaningful. Both are true. But the reason I, I was thinking of Gus moments ago also is that he told me about an experience he had. He was sitting, I think, with other therapists, and one of them was describing a case, a patient, and they were describing all the symptoms that this patient was experiencing. and. Gus noted that he was looking across the circle at another a person listening, 
And that person was looking, let's say, confused. And he was like, oh, like they were naming symptom after symptom. And this person's face was just like, oh, what could this be? What is what is it? It's that and this and that and this. And then at the very end, the person, I guess, delivering the case study said, and so the diagnosis is blank or, you know, is X, is such and such. And then the confused person's face like lit up and they're like, of course, all of those things mean that. And it's so interesting because the diagnosis is just a description of those things. It's like, imagine, here's an analogy. It's like looking up and like, look at that star and that star and that one and that one and be like, oh, of course, the Big Dipper. But like the Big Dipper doesn't exist outside of those stars. The Big Dipper is just the name that we give to that pattern. The diagnosis is just a name that we give to a pattern of symptoms, a pattern of observations and experiences that a patient might be having. And similarly, like if you went to a show that someone said, this is a comedy show, and then it wasn't exactly the comedy show that you were expecting or the kind or that it was more of a one person show, more of a story, like more of a drama at times, less of comedy. And then if somebody said, oh, no, yeah, yeah, that's not that's not a stand up comedy show. That's a specific and they gave it a different name. They're like, oh, good. Like if you go into something, <laughs> there's a comedian friend of mine named John Fish. He's really funny. And here's a thing that he says sometimes that he's like, I stopped telling people that I'm a comedian if I meet them at a party because he's like, I find that people will leave disappointed. They'd be like, that guy's a comedian. Not that funny. <laughs> so now I tell people that I'm an accountant and I feel like people leave thinking, that is the funniest accountant that oh I've ever met. <laughs> he should do comedy. And it's there's something really like profound in that. Like there's I listen to Alan Watts a lot. And Alan Watts said once he told the story of a Zen master, I think, or a Buddhist teacher who was asked, do you believe in God? And the answer that this teacher gave was, if you don't, I do. And if you do, I don't. And I think that there's something meaningful there about like sort of the relationality of everything, because I feel like that sometimes also, you know, if you even even among, let's say, like bring it to our beloved vegan community or Jews, like there's a classic thing about Jews, you know, that anyone who's more Jewish than you is a fanatic, like more practicing, like, whoa, like a little too much. But anyone who is less Jewish than you is like, are they not even Jew? Like what even, you know, so like only you, only us, only whatever level that we're at, the Goldilocks level is right. Like, and as a vegan, like I, I support, I want everyone, I would love for everyone to do it. And also like, I'm not a raw vegan. So sometimes I'm like, like raw vegans, like, what are you? I'm curious. And also as a joke, I'm like, when I'm performing for all vegan audiences, like an animal rights conference or a vegetarian food festival, I'll be like, normally when I perform for, I tell all vegan audiences that no, most of my audiences are not all vegan. And so that relationality impacts the way that I'm perceived and perhaps the things that I choose to say, because it doesn't make as much sense to, if the context is different, like for example, I don't have to go to defensively to a group of vegans and be like, look, it, here's the reasons it's good. But for an audience full of non-vegans, I mm -hmm. might have to do that in a, a more meticulous or specific way. Um, what was the question? 
<laughs> I think I think that I have to listen to your friend's show, by the way, because I was thinking recently about how I don't want to appropriate things because that would be inappropriate. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> appropriate and appropriate are exact opposites in what they mean and are spelled exactly the same way. And I just think the English language is so unbelievably difficult. Like I, I have so much respect for anyone who learned English as not their first language because there are so many things like that. I don't understand. Yeah. Great point. That is, that's fantastic that it is inappropriate to appropriate. It is, and I mean, I'm sure that if we delve not even that deeply, we'll find the etymological reason, like the source that led to both of those things being as it is. Like, I think about sometimes the customer is always right, right? And I think about that customer must come from the same place that customs does, like both, I don't know, customs at the airport and also, you know, the customs of a people. And I guess now I'm connecting this because if a certain group has certain customs, then they are right. The customer is always right. But what if your custom is to appropriate? Then is it appropriate to appropriate the customs of a different... Okay, I'm sorry. I you know it, that c customer... I just Googled it. I, that yes. Cu customer also relates to costume, which I had no idea about that. You know, I 100% didn't know that. And also, I have a joke that I tell sometimes about how Rini, my girlfriend, who helps me in so many ways, and one, one of those ways is she helps me curate my wardrobe. And so in a way, like, and I trust her visual aesthetic much more than my own. And so I essentially say that in this way, the costumer is always right. <laughs> That's awesome. By the way, when we were talking a little while ago and then you brought up your friend Gus and you're like, oh, and he's a, a therapist. And then you started talking about the type of therapy he, that he does. Yes. I feel like you were saying I should maybe get a therapist. Like, I'm like, I mean, that's I'm very pro therapy. I'm not in it currently, but I'm like, is this an intervention? <laughs> that's really funny for many reasons. I think the first reason is that's not why I was bringing it up, but the fact that you think it is, now maybe it is why I'm bringing it up. I sincerely, I mean, I also am currently not in therapy and always a big fan of people being in therapy. In fact, I'm like, and you have been in therapy at times? Oh, like I basically between the ages of 20 and 40 without ever going out into the world. I basically was in therapy most of the time. Yes. Oh, yeah. I feel like therapy should be like, I don't know, the Israeli military, like for us. <laughs> uh, I think that every I mean, spend two years like that, two years working on yourself. And then perhaps we won't even have a need for the military, Israeli or otherwise. And Wait, Mike, when you said that about the Israeli Military, all I thought about was when I was in Israel when I was 15 and the Israeli military would just get on the bus, like with their guns, and that that was normal. And I'm just imagining all these psychologists getting on the bus and like sitting next to someone and therapizing them. 
Yes. That's where I, my brain went with it. Do you think, anyway, go ahead. Yes, I, yeah. I think that would be a great plan. And like, if anyone out there is considering therapy, be they Jasmine or other listener, like, yeah, try, give it a give it a shot. I think if you're, especially if you're afraid of therapy, then definitely get into it. Like there's, I've probably told this to you, I think maybe in one of our earlier or earliest podcasts together, the thing about meditation that they say is if you have time to meditate, meditate 10 minutes a day. And if you don't have time to meditate, meditate an hour a day. And so I feel like it's like if you think therapy could be valuable to you, definitely go to therapy. And if you do not think therapy could be valuable to you, go to more therapy. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. I want to talk about Edinburgh and I want to tell you something about it really quickly, which is that yes. when I was 16, my theater company that I was in at my high school in New Jersey, where you also grew up and mm -hmm. at the same time as me, my theater company got a play accepted into the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and we had to raise money for it. And we raised like something like $15,000 of the $50,000 that we needed to raise. And so they were like, you can't go, but we can take you instead to the National Thespian Festival, which is in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so <laughs> instead of going to Edinburgh, I went to Lincoln, Nebraska, which has excellent thrift stores, I remember, and the cars go very fast. But I since then I've always wanted to go to Edinburgh. And then when I was in Scotland a few years ago, which is like my probably my favorite country, to be more specific, Glasgow is my favorite city. The train that we were on went through Edinburgh and I just looked out. I've never actually gotten out of the train in Edinburgh. Mm. So tell me what it will be like to get out of the train. Sure. I've been there once for a month in August of 2018 when I brought my last show, the album, the hour that would become the hour, the album, a.k.a. Rini and I spent and loved there and are so looking forward to returning. You'll see a lot of castles. I think you'll not be able to avoid. Uh, I mean, as long as you open your eyes, you'll see castles. It's like castles, castles everywhere and not a drop to drink. And it's mm. just it's cute. And yeah, don't drink the castles. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not going to tell people how to live their lives, but uh, <laughs> I I personally don't really drink a castle. Um <laughs> You do you. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's just this. I mean, and I've only been there during this festival, which I understand is like there's a massive surge of population that I was warned in advance would be overwhelming. And in a way, like I've been to Times Square on New Year's Eve. And so, I mean, if you've been to Times Square at any time uh, square, then you will, I think, be. <laughs> fine in Edinburgh, even during the height of the festival. Like definitely there are times when there's like a sea of people and to get from one place to another, you want to leave some time, but it's just cute and quaint. And there's a lot of oat milk. Uh, I feel like even more on the vegan tip, you know, like soy was like the first gateway non-dairy milk substitute that was like everywhere at Starbucks here in America. But it really seems like oat has, uh, I don't know if it overtook it or it just was always the thing that arose first there. 
Also, I don't know if this is my mother and me coming out, but there were so many places to eat. There was a nice soup place that always had all this vegan stuff. And also, I think it's like maybe throughout all of Europe, they have this standardized practice of put listing allergens and even more allergens like on every menu. I think like there would be, you know, how in the U.S., like I went to a restaurant with my dad and some family in Jersey City a couple weeks ago and they had on the menu buffalo cauliflower and i was like "Ooh, buffalo cauliflower that's great that's probably vegan right and it came with but ranch dressing and i was like wait so is the and it didn't mention vegan anywhere on the menu and the waiter didn't really seem to know exactly what vegan meant and i was able to figure it out and get something but this would have never happened in edinburgh it never happened i think perhaps in all of europe because while here, you know, you go to certain restaurants and you're like, thank goodness, it says V and VG or VEG. And even though there's no standardization among our people, and maybe this will be a joke at some point, that like, because vegetarian and vegan both have a V and a G, but some places are like, yeah, 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 V is vegan and VG is vegetarian. And some might do the opposite. So I'm really speaking, I'm really talking to the hard issues here. But anyway, over there, they have a very clear, like even more than just gluten-free. They're like, this has mustard in it, or this has like a celery. I forget what they are, but there's like 14 specific allergens that, you know, so they have, and they mention, of course, specifically like milk and meat and things. I don't know if they list meat as an allergen, but I do think that society should become more allergic to meat. But uh, yeah, people have cool accents over there, which is another thing. Like if you ask a Scottish person, do people here have accents? They would probably say no, but they would say it with an accent. So like, can you trust them? During the festival, especially which is when I was there, it's just like there are thousands of shows happening all day, every day, like from probably like 10 a.m. until, I don't know, four in the morning. And just I went to see clowns and circuses and storytellers and comedians and dance shows and magicians. And it's just and there's like many busking on the street as well, just like walking. There's a moment there's a moment in a Bo Burnham special. I think it's in what one of my faves. I think he's wonderful where he's like coming out from behind the piano to walk where he just played a song. And I think he's coming to the front of the stage to maybe just talk into the microphone for part of the show, tell jokes or read something. And as he's walking from the piano to the microphone, he is like saying, and he's like moving in a weird way and saying something like, comedians never miss an opportunity to like no don't waste any time or space making fun of the idea that he couldn't just or didn't want to just walk for a few seconds from one part of the stage to another without also creating content and art out of that moment and that's what i feel like edinburgh is uh during the festival it's like you could be walking from one theater to another or from one, I saw a show in the basement of a health food store to another. And then on your way, you're like, oh, also, this is a show. The whole city is, and the whole world, and wherever you are right now, and your consciousness, and your mind, or I, I, I don't think it's just my mind. I think uh, my mind is a fun playground. But I think that yours can be too, whether you're in Edinburgh or not. But it's fun. There's more castles. And- <laughs> That's that's fantastic. I definitely saw a lot of castles in 
Edinburgh. So we don't have too much more time, though. I want you to stay on for bonus content if you wouldn't mind. Yes. But so tell me, like, what's next for you and what we can do as your fans. We're all big fans of Mike Kaplan. Like, what can we do to support you? And what are you excited about? Thank you so much for asking. I will answer it in many ways. Like, of course, my name, Mike Kaplan, spelled the way that I do, M-Y-Q-K-A-P-L-A-N. If you search for that wherever you want, you'll find my comedy albums. Like, the two newest ones are AKA and Live In Between Albums. Those are on your various Spotify's, Apple Music's, Amazon's, whatever large faceless corporation you like to support. You can get my stuff through there or directly from Blonde Medicine, my record label. If you go to their website, you can find links to all the ways to get my albums. And I am a stand-up comedian, and that is my main art engagement with the world. So please, if you're, if I'm where you are, if you're in Scotland or going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe, come to my show. The show that I'm doing there this year is called Imperfect, and it is mainly about my relationship with Rini, and it's a show that we've created together and are very proud of and happy with. And if you want to find out where else I will be, if I understand correctly, the very day this episode comes out, I will be in L.A. running that show at a place called Dynasty Typewriter that I love and many other places leading up to August 2023. So check out my website. Follow me on social media. If you'd like to subscribe to my Substack newsletter, I send out for free some jokes every week and some fun things and you can subscribe for more. And there's the new notes, social media, Twitter-like aspect of that as well. And I guess the only other thing I'll say is, oh, I have podcasts, Jasmine, you have been on, Broccoli and Ice Cream, and I also mentioned The Faucet. So feel free to join my Patreon and like, feel free to just, you know, Venmo me directly. And more specifically, here's some things that are coming up next is, I don't know if I told you this, Jasmine, but... Rini and I found out that our building that we live in right now will not be habitable for a year starting next month. So oh, wow. we are that. moving all of our stuff into storage at the end of this month. And then for June, July and August, we will be on the move. We will be you know, staying with a few friends places, but I'm also just performing a lot of places. I will be performing in California for a lot of June I'll be back in Arlington, Virginia and Minneapolis in July before heading out to the UK. And so then we will return to the New York area after the fringe ends. So for September, we will be seeking a new home. And so if any of your listeners just have a free apartment in New York City, that's all that we're looking for. Uh, <laughs> feel free to support my Patreon or become a Substack subscriber or my new free landlord. I, I don't have freelandlord.com yet, but if anyone wants to you know, do that research, the main next big thing that's coming up is the Edinburgh Fringe. And then at some point thereafter, I will record that hour optimally as a special and a new album and then continue to keep emptying and filling the comedy bucket with future hours about my grandmother mother and more as i continue to amass these experiences but yeah so from right now 
I record this from Rini's mom's home in Kansas City, where we're spending the week and having a nice time with her family, her siblings, and and then it'll just be on the road and sort of in a liminal space between homes and yet in the home that is our hearts together, which is also happy to be here in in your heart home. So thank you for having me and asking and sharing all of this time. I always appreciate your perspective. I always leave with things to think about. And I'm very excited about your album and about all the work you're doing and about asking you lots of personal questions on the flock bonus content. So thanks, thanks for joining us today, Mike. Thank you. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxieties are rising. Yeah, we have we have three stories this week on anxieties arising, and they all point to issues that are really at the forefront or should be at the forefront of what the industry is thinking about these days. The first is about Prop 12. All right. So they haven't given up. It's sad, but true. We won in the Supreme Court. Prop 12 is fine. California can can ban the sale of certain pork products that are derived from animals who live in utter and complete torture. That's not exactly the way the bill is worded. But no, they're not giving up. They're going back to an old try they, they made before they tried the Supreme Court route and litigation. They were trying to get a bill passed in Congress. And I don't know whether you remember this, but it was back uh, in the day when Steve King was still in Congress. He was representing a district in Iowa, extreme right wing, and he got me tooed. So uh, he, well, I'm not sure it was actually me tooed now that I think of it. He spoke in favor of Nazism, I think, something like that. He's gone. So he had an idea. He kept trying to get it through Congress. And that would be Well, the Supreme Court decided that that Prop 2 wasn't unconstitutional. That's because only Congress can legislate under the Commerce Clause. Well, that's a very shorthand version. So it doesn't mean that that Congress couldn't do something similar to undermining Prop 12. It's just that you can't go to the courts and say that California couldn't pass Prop 12. Congress could say California can't pass Prop 12 because the Constitution puts commerce in the hands of, of Congress. And that's exactly what he wanted uh, Congress to do. And that is now exactly what I wonder if she's his successor, this Representative Hinson. She is also from Iowa. So the title of this this column, which is from porkbusiness.com, is Is the Eats Act the Answer to Prop 12 Concerns? Oh, she sure hopes it is. This is talking about this bill that's being introduced by Senator Roger Marshall, a Republican from Kansas, Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, and Senator Joni Ernst, a Republican from Iowa. That's in the Senate. And and this uh, this woman, Ashley Henson, who is a Republican from Iowa, is introducing it in the House. 
according to this article, what it would do is it would prohibit state and local governments from interfering with agricultural production nationwide while preserving their ability to regulate farming and ranching within their jurisdictions. Well, that's, of course, not what we're talking about. We're talking about whether California... I'm not even going to slant this. This is just like in my own direction. This is just what it's about. California banned the sale of pork products that are raised and killed and slaughtered and tortured in other states. Well, that was a little bit of a slant. If it doesn't, you know, suit their provisions that no gestation crates should be used. It's just talking about whether California can prohibit the sale of those products in California. You probably all, all know this, but I'm just repeating it. So it doesn't really prohibit state and local governments from interfering with agricultural production nationwide. It just, nor does it, as this article say, seek to preserve states' rights by limiting their ability to impose agricultural regulations on other states. It's not that often that we you seek to preserve states' rights by limiting states' ability to do things. But, you know, doublespeak, that's what we're talking about here. All right. So according to this article, proponents of the EATS Act believe that such regulations unfairly burden other states and their agricultural industries. Well, yeah, that's true. And then it points out arguments from the opponents claim that the act would undermine states' rights. Yeah, that undermines states' rights. It it, it would undermine uh, California's right to limit what's sold in, in California and give multinational conglomerates an unfair advantage. That's probably true, but uh, I haven't thought that through. But, you know, Representative Hinson is all for it and she has her reasons. I look at Prop 12 as a beacon ban. I think Senator Grassley called it the war on breakfast, but it's true. What do I mean? Like, I just think that's a really funny way of putting it. Like she says that these things and then she says, but it's true. Well, anyway, um, as if she's, you know, already anticipating that other people are going to say, no, that's what it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. People can still have breakfast. Uh, the reason it's true, she thinks, is it's trying to regulate how Iowa farmers produce pork, bacon, and eggs. I've been to many of these, so apparently they're not just going for uh, pork, but they're also going for the egg provision. I've been to many of these producers in person to see how they're taking care of their animals, the environment, and their communities. Animal welfare is front and center. I mean, the level of doublespeak here, like it boggles the mind just boggles the mind. Like the world, it's it's so Orwellian, the world we live in. The interest groups who have pushed back and who were behind Prop 12 don't know the first thing about farming, she pointed out. Ah, uh, yeah. I, you know, I think Representative Henson, maybe you don't know the first thing about quote-unquote farming. I also believe when someone's coming out against you like the interest groups, that's when you know you're doing something right. Like if anybody comes out against you that's interested in something, that means you're doing something right. What I don't want to see is the creep of a liberal state like California dictating how the rest of the country manufactures not only animal products, but other goods and services. As pointed out, like if you don't want to sell in California, you don't have to do anything that California says. You know, if you want their market, maybe, you know, they have a right. This is scary. This is scary because I can see Congress doing this. Uh, you know, before they had the argument, because the argument was that that the reason Congress should pass it is because it violates the Commerce Clause. And so they could say, well, go to court, you know, like if it violates the Commerce Clause. And now they've gone to court and it doesn't violate the Commerce Clause. So now they come back to Congress and Congress doesn't have anything else to tell them to do. And Congress tends to do whatever the industry wants them to do. So... It's really kind of depressing, but we'll see. There's a big fight on within the animal protection movement to do something about this. She argued that Iowa pig farmers are doing this in a respectful way to animals 
and encourages anyone who has questions about modern swine production to ask a farmer about their practices. Quote, I had a chance to visit a finishing facility when I was representing Iowa County. They're playing doctor. They're playing caretaker. They're taking good care of their animals. That's what these people care about. They want these animals to have a good life and experience in the process. That's what she said. I swear. What we're talking about is not using gestation crates, like instruments of absolute torture. Ah, the world. The world, people. The world is unbelievable. From meetingplace.com, this is another issue that people are very, very upset about in the industry, and that's bird flu. Of course, it has it has died back in the U.S. It's now raging out of control in Latin America. We've all learned how viruses work. They come and they go, and it's, it's you know, I, I'm not sure it's non-existent in the U.S. at the moment, but it, it has... It has died back after killing like a gazillion, gazillion chickens. Well, it didn't kill the chickens. The chickens were murdered as a result of being sick. All right. It ain't over till it's over. This is by the center of my plate column by Lisa Keefe. And needless to say, she says, it ain't over. Yeah, she's being kind of realistic here because she's talking about pathogenic avian influenza. One of the points that that, you know, they like to overlook is that when people have gotten H5N1, which is this strain that's traveling in birds across the globe for years and years. When people do get it, it kills half of them. So it's really really not too good if they get it. They don't catch it so far. They don't catch it from each other or rarely, rarely, she says. They can only catch it from birds. So not that many people get it. Uh, But, you know, if they do, half of them are dead. So it would really be a good thing if they didn't if it didn't progress to the point where people could catch it from each other. She's pretty worried about that. As she points out, we've seen repeated H5N1 outbreaks among mammals, such as seals and mink, and 30 different mammal species altogether. All right. So, you know, <laughs> we're not talking about bird flu anymore, are we? Uh, it's getting closer and closer. As we have learned, she points out the way viruses jump from animals to humans and then from human to human can be devastating. Yeah, we have learned that. The poultry supply chain needs to figure out how to get ahead of even the specter of a bird flu pandemic. Uh, Yeah, it does, especially if it's going to kill half the people who get it. This is unbelievable. This is unbelievable that we are still like even talking about this instead of just ending these industries. And, you know, there is a vaccination. She points out there are problems. For one thing, in the U.S., getting producers to administer vaccines to their flocks has to overcome the hurdle of cost. You know, Okay, yeah, it's too expensive, right? You know, half the people would still be alive. So, you know, it's not that bad. Of course, of course, they do not want to raise the price of chicken because then other products would uh, would compete with it. And they needed to keep it cheap, 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 cheap. And of course, you know who's going to pay for those vaccines if they ever do end up getting administered. It's going to be you and me and every other taxpayer. And she also points out that vaccines, you're, you know, Big answer. Viruses, as we all know, viruses mutate. Vaccines become less uh, less effective. There will be controversy. Some countries probably won't import vaccinated birds, whatever. Um, and and so she points out that this is, this is not an easy question. The complications mean, she says, that the USDA and possibly FDA need to apply some pressure and some funding toward an all-out effort to find solutions. Yes. That's what we should do. We should spend everybody's tax money on doing something about about the fact that the poultry industry is about to kill half of us. 
unfortunately, too, it doesn't mean the vegans will survive. You know, that would be okay. Well, maybe not okay. <laughs> Better. <laughs> but, you know, we'll be able to catch this thing just as much as everybody else once it goes human to human. Animal activists will continue to target Generation Z. This is from WhatPoultry.com by Meredith Johnson. And she's upset. She's upset. Three Big Ten college universities committed percentages of their menus to be plant-based by specific dates. Oh, my God. This is because of a campaign by HSUS. Penn State, 35% by 2025. University of Michigan, 55%. University of Wisconsin-Madison, 30%, also all by 2025. Wow, that's really pretty cool. Um, and Sodexo, which is a huge, uh, you know, food provider on campuses, 50% by 2025. As she points out, it's obvious that HSUS is targeting Generation Z. Then she puts Gen Z in parens so that you can understand that Gen Z stands for Generation Z. All right, I know I'm being snarky. I, I, I know I am. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, why shouldn't they? <laughs> um, and she points out that, you know, according to some some article or whatever. Gen Z is driving the vegan trend in the U.S. I hope that's really true. I really, really do. I think it's true. And that she points out, I don't understand what this sentence means. What's interesting is that the same survey is that it found only 17% of Gen Z vegans converted to the food choice, i.e. veganism, because they don't want to eat animal products. What? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> what? This implies that most Gen Z vegans aren't vegan because they don't support animal agriculture. Well, that might be true. It might not be that they're against animal agriculture, but they're in favor of their own health or something. I don't know. But, you know, this is no, it is true. Like it's one or the other. <laughs> it's weird. And she also thinks it's worth mentioning that two of these three colleges that have partnerships are land grant universities. This is my favorite part. This is the money quote. So is there a fundamental contradiction with land-grant universities making plant-based commitments? Of course, land-grant universities are, are you know, devoted. They, they, they get federal money and they have to have agriculture and other, certain other programs. So is there a fundamental contradiction with land-grant universities making plant-based commitments? Would it prevent them from ever committing the majority of their menus to be plant-based? I mean, listen, honey, <laughs> they always are forgetting this. That, that plants are also grown by farmers and are also part of agriculture. <laughs> there, there's really no contradiction here whatsoever. All right. I got a kick out of this week's articles. I hope you did too. That's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. 
the Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>